Please remain standing as you're able. Uh, since the pastoral prayer, I've had one Altoid and a cup of water brought to me. That's the biblical picture of submission, helping uh, one another. Uh, likely, Jesus and Paul would have gone before the text in reciting what Jesus would call the great commandment, which was the Shema and Leviticus 19.18 added to it. Let us follow in his example. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're in Paul's letter to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, this week, uh, or this summer, and this week we're in chapter 7. It's a turn in 1 Corinthians. The first six chapters are things that had been reported to him about the con- congregation, and so he, he commented on those things. And now were questions that they asked him about in a letter. And so chapter 7 turns to that, and the very first questions they have, which occupy the entire chapter, are about marriage. And so we'll do the first part, picking up in verse uh, 1. Now to the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. But because there is immorality among you, each husband should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. And the husband should fulfill the marital duty to the wife and the wife should fulfill the marital duty to the husband. For the wife is not the authority over her own body, but yields it to the husband. And the husband is not the authority over his own body, but yields it to the wife. Do not deprive one another except by mutual consent and only for a short period of time in order uh, for prayer. And then come back together so that you will not be tempted by Satan because of your lack of self-control. I wish all of you were as I am, but everyone has their own gift from God. This one has this gift, and the other has that one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It was called Cash for Class. By many, and it was the practice in the late 19th century and in the 20th century of very, very wealthy Americans trying to marry their uh, daughters off to English nobility who had estates that needed the money and the American families wanted the title that went with it. And so you had arranged marriages between American heiresses like Vanderbilt and, uh, and cash-strapped uh, English lords who had large estates but not enough money to fund them. And of course, uh, one of the most famous examples of this would be Jenny Jerome, the wealthy American who went over to England and married Lord Randolph Churchill and they had a son and his name was Winston Churchill. And of course, perhaps maybe even more famous than that, in the fictional world, you had Downton Abbey and Lord and and Lady Grantham, and Lord Grantham's estate needs the infusion of cash, and so uh, his new wife, Lady Grantham, brings that uh, from the States. And uh, it became also uh, a series this past spring, you may have seen on, I think it was the Smithsonian Channel, uh, called Million Dollar American Princesses, and it was about the stories of a number of women who were married off to people with titles in England. And for the most part, those marriages were not particularly fulfilling for either party. In fact, if you look at the Smithsonian describing the series, they said in these marriages, love was an add-on. <clears throat> if you found love in that, 
you were the exception that proved the rule that for the most part they weren't. And if you uh, read about them, watch them, there was oftentimes uh, these marriages were in trouble from the beginning and they would go outside the marriage to find different sorts of, of uh, fulfillment. I tell you all this because if you're going to l- read Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians chapter 7 about marriage, it would be best to know what the context is. What's Paul talking about? What's the situation that Paul's facing as he writes the Corinthians? And the situation is this. First of all, Corinth is a rapidly expanding and rising city. It is a city for social climbers. Image, reputation are everything. And so in the uh, in this society, people who wanted to, to uh, get ahead wanted two things. They wanted status and they wanted wealth. But the two didn't always go together. So oftentimes men who had status and who had respect would marry wealthy younger women for large dowries or for the family's estate if they were the only uh, person in that family. And so you had many uh, in Corinth and in the Greco-Roman world, many arranged or fixed marriages. And it was, it was strictly for the convenience of, of trying to move ahead either with uh, the respect or with wealth. And love really wasn't part of a picture. When the Romans wrote about such things, they said the best that you could hope for in this marriage was what they called concordia, which is uh, like concord. And it's like basically we'll have a marriage and we won't be openly hostile to each other. And they said that's pretty much the best you could hope for. And love really wasn't a part of the picture. And so for a lot of the growth, fulfillment, a meaning, and pleasure that normally is found in a marriage, uh, that was found by these Corinthian men who tended to be older than the women they married. It was found outside the marriage. And the woman was often trapped in the home and not even trapped in, uh, and occupied in a sense, trapped but not occupied with raising children because often that duty was given to household servants. And and they had little hope for meaning and for joy, and it just wasn't expected. So now you have the young Corinthian church. Now, very few of them, according to Paul, are, are nobility. Very few of them are wealthy, though obviously some have houses big enough to fit the whole church in, which is probably 60 to 100 people. So there's some wealth. And that's the picture they get of marriage. That's what makes news in Corinth is somebody married somebody else for their money. And they don't see much satisfaction, fulfillment, or growth. On the other hand, they also look around and see the cult of Isis is being established and gaining foothold among the women in Corinth. And by Isis, of course, we don't mean the Islamic State. We mean the goddess in Egypt. And if you were a woman and you were part of her cult, you had to do two things. Either don't ever get married, or if you did get married, repent, be purified, and cleansed of it in order to follow Isis. But for some of the men in town, they were attracted to a philosophy known as cynicism. It's not quite like what we call cynicism today, but it went by the name cynicism. And the belief for the men there was in order for you to grow in knowledge and in your mastery of philosophy and your growth as a human being, you basically don't have time to be married. You can't do anything that gets in the way of your growth and fulfillment. So cynics often were counseled not to be married, and if they were married, don't pay much attention to it. So they had these pictures of Corinthian society, the cult of Isis for women, the school of philosophy of the cynics for men, and then they had Paul, the one who founded the church, and is he married? No. 
And so they put all these things together, and apparently they write Paul a letter, and this is what they say. This is not a quote from Paul. This is a quote from them. They say, well, it's better for a man not to touch a woman. Basically, it's just better not to be married. It's better not to be in that relationship. And so what's fascinating is Paul, who is single, and Paul, who comes from a culture of arranged marriages, says, not so fast. Wait a minute. Marriage is significant, and Paul describes the promise that marriage holds in many ways in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7. I think it needs to be noted that Paul was from a culture that practiced arranged marriages. That's the way they did it in Galilee and Judaism. In many places they did it. I mean, you've probably watched Fiddler on the Roof and seen the frustration when, you know, when someone wants to go outside and arrange uh, marriage. And one of our most beautiful passages in the Bible comes from an arranged marriage. John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and get you to myself, bring you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You won't find that in the Old Testament. You won't find that in any great rabbinic writings. Basically, that's part of the liturgy that's used at an engagement ceremony in Galilee for a fixed marriage. And so the, the uh, parents of the groom and the parents of the bride have, uh, have arranged and agreed on the, the price and they've agreed on the marriage. And so then the prospective groom, to seal it, says to the prospective bride, I'm going. I'll add a room to my mom and dad's house. And when it's ready for you and my dad says it's ready, I'll come get you. They lived with arranged marriages. The difference was in Corinth, the best they hoped for was Concordia. But in the biblical sense in, in Galilee, they expect meaning, fulfillment, growth, joy, satisfaction, love. All of it could come even from an arranged marriage. This is what the rabbis said. They said, for God... It's harder to find two people to match in marriage than it is to split the Red Sea. So they knew it was tough. But they never doubted that God was involved in the, price, in the process. So the expectations were much, much higher than the expectations in Corinth. And those are the expectations that Paul brings to marriage as he writes the Corinthians, that it is possible for joy, for satisfaction, for growth, that each person, he says, can discover their own gift. This one has that gift. This one has the other, he says in verse 7. And where do you find it? Where do you exercise it? How do you develop it? You develop it within this partnership, within this marriage relationship. So if I were to describe Corinth, basically Corinth at least in the upper levels, in the, in the climbing levels, uh, figured out that they really couldn't expect love in marriage. They weren't even looking for it. If I were to look at our world today, I think we look and emphasize love, but we tend to emphasize it before marriage, you know, that we court one another and make sure we're kind of right for each other, and then, okay, we picked the right person, now, we're, now we go. But the Hebraic, the biblical culture is this. It's not love absent from marriage, love before the marriage. It is love after the marriage. And the text they point to is Isaac. Um, Abraham and Sarah's long-awaited child, Isaac. And before Abraham dies, he wants to make sure he's got a good bride for Isaac. So he sends his servant across to a distant relative and says, From among them, find a bride for Isaac. Fix this match. And so 
Rebecca is found and she's brought back to Isaac. And we're told that they marry and, and Isaac's never even met Rebecca before. But this is the passage, chapter 24, verse 67 of Genesis. It says that Isaac married Rebecca and then he loved her. And so the Hebraic difference is not about love absent from marriage, love before marriage, but love after marriage. And that was a possibility whether your marriage was arranged or chosen by you, that the emphasis was on how you grew in that marriage. Um, One Easterner, um, Hebraic person, put it this way to an American. He said, you Americans like to emphasize love before marriage, so your relationship's like a microwave. We tend to emphasize love after marriage. Ours is more like a crock pot. But it was possible, and Paul holds to that. And so the biblical view of marriage is all the things the Corinthians thought couldn't be found in marriage, biblically arranged or not, he believed could be found in marriage. And so it seems to me that Paul biblically is going to hold to a few things. The first thing is this, is that marriage is good for people. Uh, generally in marriage, we can discover our gifts. Generally in marriage, we can find someone who, who helps us and who grows us, who supports us and who lifts us up. And marriage is not like the cynics or the cult of Isis to be frowned upon as a, as a second-class status that keeps you apart from your faith. Marriage was considered to be a very central part of the faith. And actually, statistics even today tend to show that at least for men like me, if we're married, we live longer. I think that's because our wives eventually find out about the diet that we're eating and they take us off it, put us on something else. But lots of reasons. So I think there was a biblical view that marriage is a good. It's not a, a, a second-class sort of status. And, and one can grow and should grow and discover their gifts in marriage. But I think also Paul would say that marriage is good for the community. Because as we said, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs was so important to the rabbis in Jesus' day because they, it described a love relationship. And they said that's what it's like to be with God. A father who loves us deeply. Look at all the New Testament familial language. Brother, sister, father, son, daughter. That language permeates the scripture. And how does one learn about those relationships but in a family? And so one of the great things about uh, a marriage and part, these partnerships is they, they give a picture of love for the children and for the community. That's where they find out in many ways um, what that looks like. And, uh, and so it becomes sort of a powerful witness in the world. But the third thing I think that Paul would be clear on is that partnerships in marriage are based on mutuality. Notice what an incredible statement of mutuality 1 Corinthians 7 is. Nobody's lording it over anybody else. They're both in this together, equally sacrificing, equally serving, equally lifting up. And as I mentioned to the children, a word picture in the Older Testament for submission is, a, is like getting down to get leverage so that you can lift up. Uh, a cousin of the word submission in the Older Testament is the word bless. They have a very similar root. Uh, and so one of the ways that we talk about submission, Paul was talking not just about some sort of obedience, but about a, bl- a mutual blessing and trying to lift up the other person. Have you ever been to a Jewish wedding where at the wedding they will take the bride and groom on chairs, lift them up and carry them around? 
It's a picture of the community blessing or lifting up the marriage. And it's also a picture of what they expect bride and groom to do one for the other. And Paul would say this mutuality is very significant. Um, Jimmy Carter, President Carter, Rosalind celebrate their 70th anniversary. Did you see this? They asked President Carter what the key was to a 70-year marriage. Did anybody see it? One word he said, respect. Respect. That's the kind of thing I think biblically that Paul is bringing up. You can't find a more equal statement in relationships than 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. And Ephesians 5, appropriately in my mind interpreted, sees that mutuality. Submit to one another. Lift one another up. Uh, So I think that's significant. However, let me say a couple other things when I close As I close in chapter seven, a little bit later on, Paul gives some advice. He says, now I want you to know this is not from the Lord. This is from me. All right. So this is not from the text. This is from me. I do want to throw something out. Dinah emailed me this article from the Atlantic magazine uh, in June of 2014. And it was about the research of of a guy named John Gottman. Um, Actually, Gottman's are a couple that, that have studied marriage for decades. And he's one of the more famous sociologists of marriage. And in this, talked about Gottman has, and you've probably heard me tell you this before, has a 94% accuracy rate. He can watch people in the first few months of their marriage. They like send them on a retreat, but they watch them and study how they interact with each other on this retreat in the first first few months of their marriage. And 94% accuracy, he can tell whether they will be happily married a decade, two, three, now four decades into the future. And uh, what he did in one study is he gathered these fairly newlyweds, followed them around, recorded their interactions, saw how they treated each other, invited them back several years later, watched them again, and drew some conclusions. And one of the conclusions Gottman drew is he said, there are disasters of marriage and there are masters of marriage. And if I were to, to contrast them, he said, the marriage disasters are those who treat each other with hostility, criticism, and contempt. Even in the first few months of their marriage, that was present. He said, I can predict with great accuracy that even if they are still married, they are not happily married in the future because that's how they respond to each other. He said, the masters of marriage, he said, I would give you two words, kindness and generosity. That's how they respond to each other in their interactions. And he uses the word bid. He said, oftentimes your partner will make an emotional bid. In other words, they'll try to get your attention to get your response. And he said, our responses can uh, run along kind of uh, four possibilities. One he calls passive deconstruction. Another he calls active deconstruction. Okay, that'd be bad things, deconstruction. Then passive construction, active construction. So here's the example he gives in the magazine. Um, wife opens the mail. She's been accepted to medical school. And so with great joy, she tells her husband, I've been accepted to medical school. Here's passive deconstruction. Nothing. Here's active deconstruction. What? You'll be the oldest one there. How are we going to afford this? What are we? You're not going to be able to do your job. How are we going to run the house? Then here's passive construction. Oh, well, that's nice. That's good. Here's active construction. Great. When does it start? When is the orientation? Do you know? Can I go with you? How can I rearrange things around the house so you'll have more time to study? Do you see the difference? And Gottman says in every bid for response, it's going to be along one of those four lines. And obviously those who are active in construction are going to be healthier and happily and more happily married 
in the long run. That's the first thing I want to tell you. Second thing is this. When Paul writes the Corinthians, is he married? As far as we know, no. If you don't pay attention to rumors and weird stuff on the internet, was Jesus ever married? No. One of the things we need to be clear of is singleness is not a secondary status in the life of faith. The danger in Corinth was they made marriage a secondary status. The danger in North America is we make singleness secondary status. And it's not so. In fact, Paul said, I wish all of you were like I am. His assumption was you'd have, you have, you're more fully devoted uh, to the causes and things of God because you're not as busy lifting other people up in your relationship. You have more time directly, though I think lifting other people up certainly is one of the causes of God. And so let's be clear that wherever you find yourself, there is possibility for meaning, for fulfillment, for contentment, for growth, and for joy, both within marriage and in singleness. There was a a wonderful religious leader in the 21st century who said a few years ago, he said, I find that each of us is carrying the missing piece to somebody else's puzzle. And as I reflected on that, I realized how often in my marriage that that missing piece has been carried by me for my spouse or by my spouse for me.